James, you and I need to talk later because your son was staring at my daughter throughout the whole of the song time. So I need to have a conversation about what his intentions are. Okay, lots of stuff to do this morning. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we can uh, spend in your word. Thank you for uh, the gift of your word and the gift of understanding that you give through your spirit. I pray that this time uh, in the text this morning will help us to understand uh, not just what you've told us, but will help us love you and your son better. I pray that by studying uh, what is not being said in your word, that we can understand more truly and clearly uh, and love more sincerely what is said in your word. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Now, I'm hoping you saw in the weekly email, or you heard me announce it like 20 minutes ago, that we have a candidate that is coming in to, uh, uh, to not audition, but to be a candidate for the, the senior minister role here at Prairie View. Uh, well, over, well over 100 people wrote to us, and Aaron collected documents from 90 of them. That is cover letter, resume, Statement of Faith, Philosophy of Ministry, and a rather substantial Q&A, and that was the uh, introductory material. Now, the elders did not review all 90 of those document packets. Aaron would send them to us in batches, and then we would talk to the ones that would sort of rise to the top of the pile. Um, we first, uh, Ben first came to our attention back in very, very late September. And yeah, why did it take until February to get him here as a candidate if we were talking to him back in September? Well, partly just because of the sheer volume of resumes that was coming in. Um, Ben's almost didn't see the light of day simply because he's young and uh, not that lack of age or lack of experience was an automatic disqualification, but we just did not expect that somebody without several years of experience in church leadership was going to be a good fit for the position. And it takes time to discern whether or not somebody is going to be a good match. Fortunately, we had time. Um, we've been blessed with a, a stable core of volunteers able to keep the church operating in the absence of a senior minister. And uh, also we've been very blessed by God to have Pastor Jeff and Eric Riddle here to handle some of the pulpit responsibilities. So we are in a position where we had time, we could be patient, we could be thorough and verify that Ben was a good match for Prairie View's unique challenges. So you ask, what is so uniquely challenging about Prairie View? Because, like, we're normal, right? Um, well, yeah, sort of. Uh, the roots of our church are in the, uh, the restoration movement, the Churches of Christ and the Christian churches. We are Prairie View Christian Church, planted by East 91st Street Christian Church. Up the road, there's White River Christian Church and Indian Creek Christian Church, and across the way, Traders Point Christian Church. Call it a movement, call it a family, call it a network, whatever you do, do not call it a denomination because they don't like that. And I say them and not us because Prairie View does not fit the Christian church mold. The roots of our movement are in the Ohio River Valley of the 1830s and a frustration born out of denominational division. People began to wonder, like Jeff was talking about earlier, why can't my church and my neighbor's church get along? Why don't the Presbyterians and the Baptists and Methodists, Methodists why can't they fellowship together? Well, there's reasons why each of those branches of Christianity is distinct, but the thinking went, those reasons just weren't good enough. And so people came together under the banner of um, being unified in the essentials, but in all the other areas, the non-essentials, having liberty and in all things behaving towards each other with Christian love rather than the uh, schism and hostility that they were perceiving at the time. 
course, the devil is in the details. How do you decide what is supposed to be an essential? It wasn't long before this coming together to transcend denominationalism gave birth to a brand new denomination. But even as we were developing our own unique identity, we still retained that old slogan, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And as it turns out, that is difficult to put into practice. I preached about this about two years ago, that here at Prairie View, we draw the lines like this. We have three, three areas of essentials. There's the nature of God, and the nature of Scripture, and the nature of the Gospel. And those are areas in which we as elders are clear in our thinking and resolute in our defending. And so we grilled Ben hard on some of these issues to make sure that we weren't introducing somebody into church leadership that was going to be flaky in any way on these three issues. Now, I have been told repeatedly by some of you that sometimes some of you find me a little bit intimidating. And I don't know whether it's my academic credentials or um, my wit or athletic achievements or movie star good looks. It could be anything, really. Um, But the point is that normally on a Sunday morning, I am making an effort to be nice and friendly and give the impression that I am normal. Really, Josh? That's, that's kind of sad because it's not working for you very well. Not at all. Okay, I know, I know. But the point is this. Most of the time, um, we, were, we were so serious about interviewing these candidates that uh, there are times when we were talking to Ben that I was not trying to be not intimidating. I'm not saying that I was trying to intimidate him. I just wasn't making an effort to not intimidate him. I'm still a little bit upset that Craig would not let me waterboard him because Ben said some stuff. It was pretty inflammatory about butter versus margarine. But none of the other guys seemed to think that it was a big deal. They just wanted to make sure he was solid on the essentials, the nature of God, the nature of Scripture, and the nature of the gospel. But that's not what makes Prairie View unique. There's plenty of good churches in Hamilton County whose elders will defend healthy doctrine. I'm thinking about a a different risk, that we would be tempted to elevate something that's of secondary importance into a place of first importance. And that is so often the way it goes with denominations. There's something that makes a group of churches unique, and it becomes their big thing, their brand identity, or they make it an essential. So they end up with a Trinitarian God and inerrant scriptures and a rock-solid salvation by grace through faith in a crucified and risen Savior. And to that, they will also have speaking in tongues or a pipe organ or the Second Amendment, and that is going to be their big thing. And, well, that's not a good idea because the more things you make important, the more it diminishes the value of that which is truly important. At Prairie View, we are firmly committed to keeping secondary issues secondary. And that means that we are going to agree to disagree on some things charitably. You can be firmly convinced in your mind that Scripture lands here on a certain issue and at the same time recognize that there is a legitimate case to be made for the alternate viewpoint or that it's just not a big enough deal to fight over. It doesn't mean that there is a doctrinal free-for-all, okay? The Bible means something by what it says. You can go back to that sermon from May of 2011 and hear how we do controversy to the glory of God, how it strengthens our church. And we talked about 20 different fun topics, all of them controversial, and we all survived. Now, if you tell somebody from a normal Christian background that we are willing to agree to disagree on the role of baptism in salvation, they will look at you like you are from another planet. If you tell them that we have Calvinists, and Arminians and others, 
serving side by side on the elder team in peace, they will step back away from you slowly so that the lightning can fall from heaven. Because that is just not done in a Christian church. And that makes it hard to find somebody that wants to work here. Because the Christian church guys uh, hear our positions on some different things and what we're willing to be flexible on. And they think that we are totally off our rockers and get really indignant. Whereas the rest of American evangelicalism sees the name Prairie View Christian Church and assumes that we probably hold to a set of beliefs that they're not going to be comfortable with. And the reality is that over time, we've developed into a functionally non-denominational church with restoration movement roots, Christian church heritage. And so we are vigorously attached to our three essentials, but we are also intensely committed to preserving your freedom of conscience to come to your own conclusions based on your own uh, reading of the scriptures. Obviously, when we're in a teaching setting and we're going through Philippians or through Colossians, I'm going to call it like I see it, but you are free to disagree based on your own reading of the scriptures, but I don't recommend it. Okay, in Ben, we think that we have found somebody who shares our perspective. He has absorbed a lot of the virtues and strengths of our church's movement uh, without becoming... uh, saddled and um, bogged down with a lot of the uh, stuff that's accumulated over the last 200 years. So not only is he a nice guy, nice family, good resume, skill in the pulpit, uh, but he's also a good fit for our church. So what does this have to do with Colossians? Last week we saw how Paul used these verses 9 through 23 to establish the supremacy and preeminence of Christ over all things. The Colossians were being tempted to downgrade the role of Christ in their faith and in their practice. The spiritual environment in Colossae was pressing in on them in different ways, and Christ was being diminished. Paul is going to argue in the weeks to come against each of those influences, but first he reminds the Colossians that Christ is supreme over all things because he is God and he created everything and he is our salvation. So we need to continue in Christ and not be moved or shaken or distracted by inferior alternatives. That is 9 through 23. Now, when you are studying scriptures, it's important to check your conclusions against uh, the rest of the Bible and let scripture interpret scripture. A lot of craziness gets started when you take one verse and fail to properly consider what it means in its paragraph, in the letter, in the whole of the Bible, and you let it go off in directions that it was never meant to go. Our passage in Colossians has been used to advance two particular doctrines that are exceedingly unhelpful. Don't even make any sense biblically, and yet still manage to trip some people up. And it's not just people's doctrine that gets haywire, because belief drives behavior. And your Christian life can be seriously impaired or shipwrecked if you go too far astray. Uh, One of these doctrines is going to be an essential, and the other is a non-essential. On the essential one, you'll probably already agree with what I'm going to say, because otherwise you probably wouldn't be here. Uh, But the other is a non-essential, which means that we are free to disagree, argue, fight, throw mud at each other, all in good fun. So uh, let's take the important one first. Uh, We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 13. Now, 15 through 19 establishes the superiority of Christ over all creation by describing who he is and what he has done. So let's start in verse 13 so we can get into it. He, that is God the Father, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, that is the beloved son, 
Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Okay, right there, the firstborn. What did Paul mean by firstborn? Before we break out the dictionaries, let's uh, let him finish his thought. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then Paul goes on and talks about what Christ has done for us in the gospel, reconciling us to God. But who is this Jesus, this beloved son that Paul is talking about? Is he God having a divine nature or is he something less than God, created by God? The enemy has been raising this question since the earliest days of the church. At first, uh, during Jesus' ministry, there was no confusion about what he was claiming. The uh, religious authorities understood exactly what he was saying, and that is why they attempted to kill him. It is not for doing a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. But later on, people didn't know Jesus, didn't know the apostles, frankly, didn't know their scriptures very well. And so they were tempted to question whether Jesus was actually God or some other spiritual being like an angel. When people want to dispute the divinity of Christ, they come right here to Colossians chapter 1. We go to verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. Because what could be more obvious, right? He's the firstborn. He was the one born first. Obviously, God created him. And then through him, had him create everything else that is. Well, that would work except for uh, three simple things. First, it does not fit with what Paul is trying to do in this passage in Colossians 1. He's trying to establish that Christ is supreme over creation, not that he is a part of creation in any way. Second, it does not fit with the rest of the Bible. Uh, now is not the time, but we would start in John 1 and go to John 3 and John 8, 1 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 4, Hebrews 1, and we'd probably go back to John 1 because it's so important. And all of them say the same thing, that Jesus has a special, unique relationship with the Father in that while they are distinct as Father and Son, they are one God. And Jesus is the invisible God made visible. And to make Colossians 1 say otherwise means you have to do some dreadful interpretation and all those other texts, too, in order to make them wrong, too. So first, the view doesn't fit with the passage. And second, it doesn't fit with the rest of the scriptures. Third, to make verse 15 say that Jesus Christ is the firstborn created thing in creation doesn't even get verse 15 right. You know that I don't use Greek up here very often, but when it's time, it's time. The word that we get firstborn from is prototokos. And does prototokos mean the firstborn child, or in this case, the firstborn created thing? No, it does not. Prototokos means to have the rights, the place, the privilege of the firstborn. Paul uses the word again in verse 18, the firstborn out of the dead. Was Jesus the first person to be raised from the dead back to life? No, he was not. Was he the first person being in an alive condition to go straight to heaven? No, he was not. So in what sense was Jesus the firstborn out of the dead? In that out of all humanity who has ever lived and died, he is 
our Savior and our Captain, rescuing us and leading us out the other side of death. He's first in order, first in place, first in priority. He isn't the prototokos over creation because he is created first, but because he has the rights of the creator, because he is God. Two Saturdays ago, and then again yesterday, in the late morning, we heard a knock on the door. Who knocks on a Saturday morning? The UPS guy rings the bell. Brianna's little friends, they ring the bell. The drug-pushing Girl Scouts with their little boxes of heaven, they ring the bell. Who knocks on a Saturday morning? The Jehovah's Witnesses, that's who knocks on a Saturday morning. And um, it's almost like they don't actually want you to come to the door. For 200 years, they have been dragging this doctrine into the future, kicking and screaming against all the weight of Scripture and history and uh, Greek scholarship. It is getting harder and harder for them to argue that John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1 say what they want it to say, but really that just means that they are arguing harder and harder on the point. And when they give up the divinity of Jesus, they also have to give up the Holy Spirit entirely, and then things really start to unravel. Um, They are, to their credit, solid on what Jesus did, making atonement by his blood, reconciling us to the Father, but they are just so warped and deficient on who Jesus was. Brianna knows about them. They are those magazine people, she calls them. And when they started going door to door on our street earlier this month, she just absolutely freaked out. She wanted to go behind them and steal all the magazines off of our neighbor's front doors, panicked that somebody might learn something wrong about Jesus. And after we sedated her, um, we explained to her that if you want your friends to know what is true about Jesus, you're just going to have to be a good friend and Tell them yourself, because obviously other people are willing to, and you might not like what they have to say. So, uh, the point from Colossians 1 is that it affirms the deity of Christ rather than confusing the question. Let's turn the corner to the other topic, the potentially controversial one, since on this one there's going to be room for us to disagree. And we still have to live with each other. It's pretty easy to disagree with the Jehovah's Witnesses, not just because they are the nicest people on the planet, but because they are over there and we are over here and we leave each other alone. But when we have to disagree on stuff inside the church, that's when things get challenging. Verse 9, Paul begins to pray for the Colossian church that God would do something on their behalf. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Stop there. What does he mean, the knowledge of his will? Well, the proper response is to say, keep reading, and he'll probably tell you. And he does. He does. And we'll get there. And it's nothing earth-shattering, but sometimes people want to make this way more complicated than it needs to be. The Bible talks about God's will from beginning to end. It is a completely routine concept, the idea of God wanting something, wishing something, desiring something to take place. And as you study your Bible, you will discover that in English, when we talk about God's will, there are two things that we might mean by that. And that's two. Not one, and not three, and there's two. Sometimes people want to make there be a third, and they can get themselves in a lot of trouble, because there's two. And that's going to be uh, the potential for disagreement there that, uh, that we'll see. I'm sure I'm going to make somebody angry this morning, but... Um, I'm okay with that. So when a verse is talking about God's will, there are two things uh, that it can mean. And one of them is that it's talking about God's sovereign 
will. This is his rights as the sovereign, as God, as the creator, uh, to have a divinely ordained, in eternity past, secret plan for everything that takes place in the universe. There are a lot of scriptures that we could go to talk about the sovereign will of God, uh, but let me give you just five that will highlight God's sovereign will. From Daniel 4.35, he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the habitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Ephesians 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Acts 2, 23. This is Peter speaking to an unbelieving crowd on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then the church is praying a couple chapters later in Acts chapter 4. For truly there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, so everybody, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So from these scriptures describing God's sovereign will, we can discern a few key attributes. It includes all events that ever take place. It is hidden and not revealed to us in advance unless God chooses to do so. We can only know it after it happens, and we have no obligation to seek it. It always proceeds and can never be thwarted. It includes both good and evil, but in such a way that God is not the doer of evil, but rather the one who brings either grace or justice. And so, ultimately, it indirectly glorifies God in the end. Okay, but there are a great number of scriptures that do not fit into that category of God's sovereign will. There's also God's moral will, his revealed laws and commands in the Bible that teach us how we ought to live and behave. So you get passages like these. Romans chapter 2, verse 18. You know his will. You know his will. And approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. Because you're instructed from the law, you know his will. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your growth in godliness, becoming more like Christ. This is the will of God. Then after that comes a series of instructions in the realm of uh, sexual purity. Not just abstinence, but purity. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Will of God for you is to pray without ceasing, rejoice always, and give thanks in all circumstances. In addition, into this category, we can put all of the clear moral commands of God. Every direct command that carries moral weight. The law, the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, and every clear moral instruction from Jesus or the apostles. And from these verses, we can make some statements about God's moral will. It is a set of general commands, not specifics. It is revealed exclusively and already in the Bible before we need it. We are supposed to seek it out and discern what it is, and we can miss it by sinning, either 
unintentionally or intentionally. It includes only what is good, distinguishing it from evil, and through our obedience, it directly and immediately glorifies God. So we have God's sovereign will and his moral will, and it's not very hard to tell them apart once you uh, learn the categories and, and learn how to recognize what it is that you're looking for once you get used to it. Now, I said that sometimes people try to manufacture a third thing that might be meant when we talk about God's will, and it's really a, uh, an unholy blend of the other two. Uh, let me illustrate this. Erin came up with this illustration, and it, uh, it really works, especially because it's at her expense. When she was, um, she really, really loves puzzles, jigsaw puzzles, and when she was younger, was this before we met or after we met? Okay, before we met, before she got cool, then um, she used to do jigsaw puzzles. And so she took two 1,000-piece puzzles and mixed them together and dumped them all together and mixed up the pieces. And then she attempted to do the puzzles separately but at the same time. She was a real party animal, I know. And uh, so what she failed to consider was that these two puzzles came from the same manufacturer and had a very similar cut design. So pieces from one, I know, indeed, pieces from one puzzle would fit in the other, and those pieces were already in the other puzzle. So frustration and disaster. She's taking the wrong pieces from the wrong puzzle and putting them together in a way that led to a real mess. So what happens when you take pieces of God's moral will and God's sovereign will and put them together in the wrong way? Uh, well, you end up with quite a mess. It's a popular but completely unbiblical idea known as God's will for your life. And uh, it blends the two categories in such a way that makes the Christian life a real burden. It's very difficult. It goes like this. You've got to find God's will for your life so that you can do it or else. He has a precise plan for your life, and it's on you to figure out what it is. And if you screw it up, you've ruined it, and you've doomed yourself to God's second best or worse, depending on how many mistakes you make. It takes the freedom of loving and serving Christ and turns it into this blindfolded obstacle course where you never really know what you're supposed to be doing. Instead of serving God in whatever way you enjoy and produces fruit, you're left to be like reading spiritual road signs and trying to figure out whether or not it's God's will for you to teach in Kid City. When really, if you've got the desire and the ability and the opportunity to teach, then teach. You don't need a special call from heaven in order to teach the kiddos. So, God's will from your life, it's hidden, it's not revealed, but it's up to you to seek it out. And he's not obligated to show you his will for your life unless you search for it really, really hard. And if you miss it, then you have sinned. There's more that can be said on this topic. Uh, several good books have been written recently. This is the most comprehensive and exhaustive one. Professor Friesian did his doctoral dissertation on this material. So if this one seems a little bit intimidating, there's also a good one from James McDonald. And uh, Kevin DeYoung has one that he wrote a few years ago called Just Do Something. And I went to my bookshelf where it was supposed to be, and it's not there. So if I have lent it to you, let me know so that I can get it back or send you an invoice or something because I want it back. So remember what we mean by God's will when we are talking about that. There's his sovereign will, uh, which is uh, the will of decree, which isn't revealed and can't be missed. And there is the moral will, which he has given us in his word. Sometimes people find a verse like Colossians 1 verse 9. And they assume that it's talking about God's will for their life. But when you actually examine it, you can 
figure out that it's actually talking about one or the other, the sovereign will or the moral will. So let's practice with a few examples before we go back to Colossians 1. We're going to ask ourselves, does the verse that we read describe God's sovereign will or his moral will? Which aspects does it display? Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, Paul is telling us to seek something out and to find it and to please God by doing it. The context is drawing a contrast between the world's way and God's way. So Paul is telling us to seek out God's moral will so that as believers, we can please God by doing what is right. Let's go to Ephesians 5 verses 5 through 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Again, Paul is telling them to seek something and follows this up in Ephesians 5 with a series of moral commands. So this is also God's moral will. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Discern right from wrong and do what is right. One more, Proverbs 16, verse 9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. No instructions, nothing to seek out, nothing to do, or to avoid, just a reminder that for all of our plotting and planning and scheming, God is the one running the universe. So this is plainly a reference to God's sovereign will. They're not always quite so straightforward, which is probably why there's room for confusion in the first place. There's a verse in Second Peter chapter 3 that talks about God not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that one could go either way, depending on how you read Second Peter 3. If you think Peter's trying to do one thing, you'll get that it's the sovereign will. If you think he's trying to do something else, you'll get uh, the other way around. Let's take a look at our verse from Colossians and see what it tells us about God's will. Chapter 1, verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Then there's four descriptive phrases. Bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened for endurance, and giving thanks to the Father who has saved us in Christ. Don't make this more complicated than it is. Paul wants for us to have the spiritual wisdom and insight that we will need to know right from wrong and understand God's moral will so that we, as believers in Jesus, as his people, can do what pleases him and walk in a manner that is proper and fitting. Later in this chapter, in next week's text that uh, Pastor Riddle will be talking about, uh, he also wants us to know and understand God's sovereign will as it relates to his people, that he has revealed the mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. That's us. To them, to us, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of of glory. So let's wrap it all up. It is God's moral will for us that his people love him and serve him and grow in him and bear fruit. That is what he wants for you as an individual, and that's what he wants for us 
as a church. And that is what we are hoping and praying Ben will be leading us towards through his ministry in the pulpit and his work in our lives. That we will be growing in Christ, increasing in wisdom, deepening our love for the Savior, being strengthened for endurance, and continuing in him all the way to the end. It is God's sovereign will that his son Jesus receive all the glory in creation and in the church and in Prairie View's next season. And that will cannot be thwarted. Let's bow our heads. Maybe when you came in this morning, you knew in your head that Jesus was God, but you haven't been living that way. This morning, this time in Colossians 1 is an opportunity for you to be reminded by God's word that not only is Christ sovereign and preeminent, but he's also our Savior, who leads us into a joyful relationship with God the Father, a relationship that we must pursue and cultivate if it's going to flourish and blossom and bear fruit. Maybe, on the other hand, you've been so committed to following Jesus as Savior and Lord that you are too nervous and afraid to make any decision without knowing for sure that it's a good idea in his eye. Let Colossians 1 be for you a reminder of the freedom that we have in Christ to serve him in any way that we deem wise, that leads us into fruitfulness and into a greater love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us your words so that we can understand who you are and who is this son that you have sent, not just one of your created beings, but God himself, you yourself, come to us as a man. And thank you that you have given us your word so that we can understand what it is that is pleasing to you. Not so that we can be in your presence because we've done good works, but because Christ has reconciled us into a relationship with you already by his work on the cross, that we can then grow in him and walk in him and live our lives in a way that pleases you. Please help us to feel the freedom that you have for us in Christ and not to be entangled by false doctrines about the identity of Jesus or about how you want us to serve you. Please help us to be free and uh, generous and eager in our service of you and in our desire to love you more and more. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.